Hello, you are listening to the I Bounce Back podcast. This is your host, Indre. With this podcast, we bring stories about people from all walks of life. We are all stories. This is what I believe in so strongly, and I think every story is inspiring and can teach us a lesson. When the community members broke into my apartment, dragged me out, and they started beating me up on the streets, they were singing, he's gay, we have found out, we are going to kill him. That was the first time I ever left Nigeria trying to flee my own country because I was afraid for my life. This is episode 6 and a story about freedom to be. Edafe Okporo had to flee his native Nigeria after being beaten for his work as an LGBTQ activist. He had to do so only to find himself behind bars in the United States. Today he is helping other asylum seekers avoid being locked up and is running a shelter for refugees in New York. I didn't start as an activist. I went to school to study food science and technology. When I graduated from university, I was posted for the National Youth Service Corps. This is a program that you participate in, just like the Peace Corps. After you graduate from college, you'll be sent to another city where you will get your first job experience. Why I was posted for this program, I got to see the real suffering of women living with HIV and AIDS that are pregnant. This is where I became activist in the first place. But only after Adafa moved to Abuja, the capital city of Nigeria, he found his true calling and chose an advocacy path that eventually led to an expected chain of events. When I moved to Abuja after this one year, I started working as a part of a group that was advocating for gay men to have access to HIV treatment because I saw that my community was the most affected by this HIV virus. That work led to a lot of persecution I was facing. I wasn't facing as strong persecution as other people because I had a college degree. So I put myself in the proverbial shoes of those who are constantly being persecuted. And I said, what would it take to stand up for these people? So it was compassion that led me to becoming an activist. Because I said, if I keep silent because I have a college degree and I can have a job, how about other people that don't have that? Who will fight for them? That was what led me to becoming what people would call me as an activist. You have mentioned about the persecutions, and I know that a couple of years ago, the situation in Nigeria got worse in terms of gay rights. Can you explain a little bit what was the situation and were there any laws that protected the LGBTQ plus community rights? So before 2014 in Nigeria, they say it's the kiss and don't tell. So gay people can be friends with other gay people. As far nobody knows, nobody will do anything to you. But in 2014, our president, then Gulag Jonathan, January 7th, passed a law called SSMPA, Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act. This law led to an increase in violence against LGBTQ people. The law says that gay people will be persecuted 14 years imprisonment. I, 
and many other gay people had to run into hiding. The first time this law came into like re-execution was when community members in, in Gishiri pull out gay people from this community that they have used as a safe haven and started beating them, setting them on fire, saying that they are doing the work of the president and they are cleansing the community. This law further led to the marginalization of gay people in having access to healthcare services because nurses started discriminating people living with HIV, classifying them as gay. So the law just opened a floodgate of persecution against gay people. We are not able to live our lives anymore. Have these people ever been arrested for these attacks against the LGBTQ plus community? Thank you very much for that question. In Nigeria and Cameroon, they have what they call jungle justice. Jungle justice is when vigilantes and community members take laws into their hands. And our justice system do not persecute these people that act as law enforcement agencies. The Amnesty International did a report, and the report shows that 98% of Nigerians says that gay people are the cause of their problem. Another 97% of Nigerians say that gay people should not exist. So jungle justice is permitted in the country because people feel like they are protecting their custom. So people who do these things are even protected more than people they persecute. How did you feel as a gay man living in your native Nigeria, native country, and knowing about all this hatred and persecutions and all this terrible situation in your country? It didn't really come close to home, not until I came out visibly. I've been attacked by mobs twice. In 2014, I was attacked by a mob. A guy I met on a gay dating app pretended to be a gay guy. We chatted and discussed that we are going to meet. When we met, I didn't know that it was a mob. They dragged me out of the motorcycle. They started beating me with wood, stick, block, anything they could find their hands on. And they stripped me naked. They took all the things I have, kept me on hostage, took my credit card and debit card, went to the ATM and took all the money I had in my account. And they came back and they told me to run and don't look back. After that incident happened, I said that I'm not going to be gay anymore. If I could have changed who I am as a gay person, I would have done that a long time ago. So I was quiet for about two years. Not until 2016, the year I fled Nigeria. I was living in Abuja when the community members broke into my apartment, dragged me out, and they started beating me up on the streets. They were singing, he's gay. We have found out we are going to kill him. While they were beating me up, I blacked out. When I woke up, I found myself in a clinic. That was the first time I ever left Nigeria trying to flee my own country because I was afraid for my life. This is so terrible and I'm very sorry that you had to go through through this. Can you tell 
about your experience coming out to your family. I assume it was not easy and your family probably was as conservative as the rest of the country. So I grew up in a very traditional African family and they are very orthodox Christians. So I disguised my sexuality for a very long time. The first time my family found out was a blowout. My dad wanted me to get married to a woman to kind of change me from being gay. Right from a very young age, I've gone through conversion therapy. They have tried to convert me from being gay to become straight. And How they tried work. <laughs> conversion therapy is there's traditional conversion therapy and there's religious conversion therapy. Traditional conversion therapy, I was very young, I was about eleven years old. They will take you to an abalis, cut marks with razor on your stomach, cook up concussions, light up candle, give you dirty water to drink, and do some incantation to cleanse you from being gay. The religious conversion therapy is you will be taken to a church and they will be praying for you, you will be fasting until the spirit leaves your body. But nothing changed. Having in mind all this atmosphere and the fact that your family basically did not accept you as a gay person. How did you find the motivation to keep going and to keep doing what you were doing? Because the pressure was high and it was easy to start doubting yourself. And especially because the environment was so against you. That's a very good question, though. At a point in my life, I didn't know who I was. I looked for books online, videos. Like, I didn't see a black gay person that I could resonate with, like, oh, this person is gay, so maybe I am okay. The first time I saw myself in anything was a documentary that is called Paris is Burning about the gay ballrooms, underground ballroom scene in Paris and New York. So when I saw that, I'm like, okay, I exist to, and my story should live. So I was fighting to be able to have an opportunity to live and see if what I say I am is real. So that struggle is very real. I found myself, I joined a church, I became a pastor. I thought that that would stop me from being gay. I still remain gay. So then I came out to my pastor in my church. I told him that I'm gay. I can't change myself. I have tried and tried. I can't. I continued by finding community in Abuja, Nigeria, where I was working for the human rights organization advocating for gay men. So we have underground parties. So these underground parties is we dress normal. When we come to the underground party, we change our clothes and find community, play, dance, sing. And I was still struggling with myself. Not until I came to America, that was when I started accepting myself for who I am. It was always a struggle. Even today, I receive messages from social media, from Nigerians saying that the struggle is real. I don't know how you did it. I'm really glad you were able to do it. But coming out as an African, even in the US, it's also still hard for me. I'm thousands of miles away from my entire community, but people still attack me online because they see that I'm out mm. and gay. Wow. So you still receive comments from Nigerian people until this day? It's like 
never ending every day on social media people comment that faggot you are going to die people tell me that i'm traveling on vacation i upload a picture people be like if you are returning you're playing with crash you're promoting this gay agenda all over the internet if you see me on tv people also criticize me there's always been a life of like standing in the gap of so many people that are marginalized it must be very hard to carry on doing what you are doing right now when you get all this backlash when you started your activism and advocacy work in nigeria did you know that eventually you would have to leave the country because you put yourself at risk no i didn't think i was going to leave the country i really thought that i was going to change nigeria i was so stupid <laughs> i thought that my my voice was going to change nigeria i wanted to fight for something that i felt nobody was fighting for so my goal then was to create change educate people give people a reason to believe that they too can be who they want to be not until i started receiving attacks towards my life that i realized that nigeria might not be the place that i have to be that if i want to create that change i could also raise my voice wherever i am i don't have to sacrifice my life in nigeria to do so and after this attack when you woke up in a hospital was it that time when you realized that you needed to flee the country yeah that was the moment i said to myself that if i would have to enjoy this life i have always wished to have as a open gay person it wouldn't be in nigeria but i didn't know where i was going to write a review, and then you can share it. With the world. In any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month, of every year, of every century, of every... You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of Hashtag PodRev Day, Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. PodRev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag PodRev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. I also want to invite you to write a review or rate the I Bounce Back podcast. You can do so on any platform, whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And you can write a review for this particular episode. Before the break, our guest Adafi Okporo has told us about his life in Nigeria as a gay man. After he was beaten and hospitalized, he decided that he needed to flee his country. 
on the first occasion when he was going to the United States for work reasons. He asked for asylum. It was a spontaneous decision. When I landed in JFK, I thought that there was going to be like a process. Maybe I would get an hotel. But I realized that the money I had in my account, when I converted it to dollars, it was less than $150 or less than $200. Then I realized that it wouldn't take me anywhere. So I turned back to the immigration officer and asked them that I am fleeing my country because my life is in danger. So then they told me that I'm an asylum seeker. That I have to be taken to a room for questioning. After a series of questioning, they told me that they don't have anywhere to keep asylum seekers in the U.S. that they are going to take me to a jail. And that was where I almost, almost said that I'm going back to Nigeria. But I realized that if I go back to Nigeria, I'm going to my debts. All the persecution I have suffered was what pushed me to flee my country. So I couldn't go back. So I preferred to stay in a jail and fight my way than to return back to Nigeria. So you ended up in a detention center waiting for the court to decide whether to grant you an asylum or not. How did your time there look like? Because it was not a day, not a week, not even a month. It was six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I spent six months in a detention center, but those six months also shaped me as a human being. So I came to the U.S. expecting to start my life, but they threw me into a detention center. In the detention center, I should just explain, there is no way to see the outside world. We don't go outside. The only way we see the outside world is just a little volleyball court where we go and exercise. There's, the roof is open. Then we spend all our day and night in that warehouse. We can't have access to food. The foods are not even nutritionally of good quality. And worst of all, I used to work in that detention center for a dollar a day. 31 days, I make $31 to be able to place call to my family in Africa and my legal professionals. It was very hard to stay in a detention, very difficult. How did you cope with all this stress when you were detained? Did you think at that time that maybe you made a mistake? No, I didn't think I made a mistake. I was very hopeful that one day I would leave that detention center and I will move into my life. That is why I was able to publish a book just after one year of living in the detention center, less than a year. Because while I was in the detention center, I asked myself, this is not a situation I can control, but what do I have in my control? What I have in my control is I could write a story about everything that happened to me. I could decide to read books about people who have been detained before. And I did that. I read Nessie Mandela's memoir. I read Mohammed Gandhi. The first Nigerian democratic president was came out from prison and became president. Um, Egyptian president that wrote the peace treaty came out from jail and became president. And I was just so inspired by all these people who find those quiet time while they were in jail. Instead of seeing themselves as in prison, they saw themselves as an opportunity to create something meaningful. Nessie Mandela did so also. Malcolm else also did the same thing. So being in a jail 
you can see it either as a punishment or you can see it as an opportunity to rewrite a different story about yourself. Wow, that's very impressive. So basically literature help you to go through this very, very challenging time. Yeah, so there's nothing I could assess there. We don't have access to email, no access to phones, no access to the outside world. The only way I could assess the outside world was through radio. We have access to the news on TV and books. So one thing I, I discovered is that a lot of the books I wanted to read, <laughs> I couldn't read them because the world was so busy for me. That was the place I was continuing to count, like, okay, time is going. What can I be doing instead of me to be counting time? I should be learning more about different things that have happened in the world. But there was a time I had a setback in the detention center. Two weeks to my court, my court was supposed to be in March. I got a letter from immigration that my court has been postponed to April. Eight more weeks was added to my stay. Then I couldn't really read anymore. Because I became frustrated that I thought I was going to be leaving in March. Now I'm going to be leaving April 18th. It was really, that was the most difficult time I had while I was there. Kind of a little bit depressed. The final month. The final one month was kind of depressing because, you know, I was really excited I was going to leave in March. And they postponed my cuts to April. So then all the strength I had that I've been using to push through was just flashing in front of me and it was a big test for me. And that was the period I said to myself that this is really a test to my character. If I had the option to return back to Nigeria and live in peace, in that final one month, I would have done that. You've said that you were so excited waiting for the court to decide So you were pretty sure that you would get an asylum? I don't know if I would get it, but my lawyers told me that I would get it because my case was well documented. So I'm a gay man from Nigeria. We have a law that persecutes gay people. And the asylum law says that if you have been persecuted in the past, present, or future persecution, or you have 10% chance you'll be persecuted if you return to your country, you'll be granted asylum. And my lawyer have the proof of my medical, uh, my, my, my doctors in Nigeria, my lawyer gathered this document, my doctors in Nigeria, they wrote a letter when I was admitted, the community where I was beaten, they got pictures from there, the letters that were posted out saying that I should be brought down dead or alive. Uh, my job I was doing in Nigeria before I left was in HIV and AIDS and access, access to healthcare services for gay men, So there was a lot of proof to show. I used to date a French guy and he left Nigeria back to France. He's the white guy. So he wrote a letter and also sent pictures of our of both of us when we went on vacation severally. And my community members wrote letters for me and people took pictures of me in all those underground parties. The document that was submitted for my asylum claim was like a Bible, very huge. That's that's great, thank God. Can you remember the day, well, of course you probably will never forget the day when you were granted the asylum. Can you describe the moment and your first steps when you left the detention center? So, I was granted asylum on April 18th, 2017. That day, 
is like ingrained, it's like a new bit to my life because I've been suffering persecution from family, community, my country. I've almost lost every identity I have as a human being. Being in that detention for six months was very, very difficult. So that day, I got my asylum in the morning. I was so excited that this night, I'm going to be released. When, I, when the gate was open, I didn't know I got there. I just saw myself in the middle of warehouses. I knelt down and I kissed the soil. It was so precious that I could see the outside world after being in this place for so long. But the only thing that happened that day is just like, I don't know anywhere in America. I came through New York. I was detained in JFK. I was put on handcuffs, driven in a bus straight to Elizabeth, New Jersey, taking me to this detention center. I don't know anywhere. Despite the fact that I don't know anywhere, I was so happy just breathing fresh air not wearing the same uniform I've been wearing for six months. I'm just like, yes, now I can go out and be my true self. Wow, that's very impressive. And can you describe the first months, the first weeks in New York? As you have mentioned, you did not have anyone. So how did you restart your life? So, you know, when I came out of the detention center that night, I walked from Elizabeth to Newark. It's, it's close by county. When I got to Newark, I went to the YMCA. I asked them if I can stay there that night. I stayed in the YMCA that night. The next day, they gave me a contact of a group called First Friends of New Jersey and New York. First Friends of New Jersey and New York sent a volunteer, and they paid for me to stay in the YMCA shelter for two weeks. In that two weeks, I, the first morning I walked to, I was walking around and I saw uh, St. Paul Church in Newark. They were giving breakfast to homeless people. And I joined the line, very long line. And I got coffee, croissant, and bagel. I ate it on the street. They had a canopy there. Then I asked of the library. So they showed me the library in Newark. I walked to the library. I got access to one hour to use a computer and I log on my email and Facebook. People were writing, are you dead? Where are you? What is happening to you? <laughs> I saw a lot of email. People wrote me emails saying that, where are you? What is happening? And that was when it dawned on me that I had lost touch with the world for six months of my life. So I stayed in that YMCA. One day, Every day I go to the library and use Facebook, go to the library and use Facebook. One of the days I was on Facebook, a lady that came to do a PhD dissertation in the clinic I was working in Nigeria from John Hopkins. Her name is Christina. She was employed by the uh, Board of Health in New York. And she met me on Facebook again and said, Hi, how are you? It's been long. I said, ah, I'm in Newark. Are you in Maryland? She said, no, I'm in New York now. I'm employed by the State Department. I'm like, wow, good for you. And she was like, wow, good for you. Why, how long have you been in the U.S.? I said, six months. She said, you have been in the U.S. six months. You didn't write me? I said, I'm sorry. I was in the detention center. I started telling her my story. She gave me her phone number and said I should call her. So I left the library, called her, 
and she offered me to stay in her place three months rent-free. So as, as I moved after two weeks of staying in the YMCA to her couch. From her couch, I got my first job as the kitchen manager of Eat of Beats. It's an all-refugee-based agency in New York City. Since I have a degree in food science and technology and a master's in nutrition, this was just a good fit for me, managing a staff of 40. So that is how I moved from being in a detention center, being homeless, to finding my first job. That's really amazing. So after this experience in the detention center, your focus has shifted. You decided to open a refugee shelter in New York and, and to help asylum seekers. I didn't know what I wanted. But life always drives you to that place wants you to go to if only you would listen to it the night i was released that night i became homeless and i discovered that me before i opened that shelter i worked for hyacinth aids foundation in new jersey i was doing hiv work while i was doing that work i was saying to myself i love doing hiv work although i'm hiv negative this work is not so much passion for me again because then I was worried about my community. Now my community are other displaced people. What do they really need? And I know that when I came out of the detention center, I needed housing. So I'm like, if I could just save one person from not being homeless, I think that would be a win. That was what led me to opening that shelter, to prevent other people that would be released from detention centers like myself or refugees that just stomp up to New York City like I was in the airport that day to find a place they can stay and start their life. So how does your daily work look like? How many people do you help? How do you find them? Um, and what kind of progress have you made so far? So I've been the director for some time now. We have helped 82 people transition so we help people from three major ways one is that people who are released from detention center they come to the shelter is a temporary transitional housing between three to six months so if in america there's a system for applying for asylum they have defensive and affirmative defensive are people in detention center affirmative are people that are outside the detention center so before you get to social security you have to be granted asylum or you have a work authorization. But when you don't have these things, you can't assess any other service. So we don't provide service for people who already have supports like city housing, shelter system. We provide support for displaced people who are in the process of getting access to resources. So we have been able to help 80 people transition. We give them a place to stay. They get the legal services, they win their asylum, they rent an apartment, and they move into their place. So we get people from detention centers, people who come from other states through the border, and refugees that are granted refugee status from other countries and do not have a place to stay in the U.S. We provide a support later for them. I also want to touch upon another fact. You, in the videos that I've seen, you talked about uh, the other form of discrimination that you had to face when 
uh, you moved to the United States and it was very surprising for you that you were discriminated not because you were gay, but because you were black. When I came to the U.S., I didn't know that being black is a big thing. You know, in Nigeria, we didn't learn a lot about slave trade or things like that. Not until I came to the U.S., I didn't know much about, like, like Jim Crow South and things like that. When I came to the U.S., I started discovering a lot about how black people have been marginalized in the past and how that marginalization have been internalized. Even black people discriminate me as an African because of my accent sometimes. There's so much polarization in America that for you to understand the system of oppression, you have to live in America to see it firsthand. Outside, the outside world do not have that perception of America. Even me, I see a lot of good things on TV about America. And I thought that it was going to be all colored roses. I didn't know that I was going to be the one creating a path for myself. How do you see yourself right now? Do you see yourself as a New Yorker? I, 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 I think that New York and California is so different from the rest of America. Maybe Chicago also and Denver and Louisiana. So New York is the center of the world. All languages are spoken here. All tribes and all people of all places live in New York City. The first borough I lived in New York was in Queens. Queens have the most diverse languages in one train. It's called the seven train. And that's where you have the Asian community, like, like a very big Asian and Latino community there. So when I came to the U.S., staying in New York, I didn't know about Jewish people. I didn't know about people from Central America. I didn't know a lot about Asian people. New York has opened my life to a lot of different things. When you sit on a train in New York City, public transportation, you meet a millionaire there, you meet a homeless person there. All people in New York are so welcoming and so friendly. Inside New York State, New York City is different. So I feel like I'm a New Yorker because I'm accepting and welcoming of all. And that is what makes you a New Yorker. You don't discriminate people. There are 21, 22 protected characters. You don't do discriminate people based on their sexual orientation, based on their employment status, based on... I don't think there's anything that you... Housing, public... There's, there are laws that protect people in New York City. So if you love... If you are open-minded and you are welcoming of all, you are a New Yorker. What is your connection today with Nigeria and also your family? So I've started building my relationship with my family because when I came to the U.S., I discovered more and more the importance of that close needs with family. But, you know, family could be people you choose and family could be biological and a lot of LGBTQ people have adopted the model of choosing family. So I have a choosing family here in the U.S. I have women, men, communities that have accepted me. So I don't really care if my family doesn't accept me like the way I was longing for the acceptance as a teenager. 
Maybe staying in the U.S. have changed the dynamics of the relationship I have with my family. I make money here, and money is the root of all evil. <laughs> Some of my family have accepted me because they see that I am a means to a new way of living. And your connections or relationship with Nigeria? So I'm so connected to Nigeria. Nigeria is my home. I'm a Nigerian at heart, physically, mentally, emotionally. I spent 26 years of my first 26 years of my life there. On social media, I'm still heavily rooted in the cause of promoting equality in Nigeria. I've done pieces, television pieces that have aired on NTA, Nigerian Television Authority, about me being a gay, openly gay guy. So I don't know what would happen in the future, but it's my hope that in the future I can be able to go back to Nigeria and continue to create change, create awareness for the community. What kind of advice would you give to people who are maybe, you know, in the same situation that you were a couple of years ago? It is hard to give hope to somebody in a situation like that because I come from a point of privilege now. I live in the U.S. I could say anything I want to say. But I want to let people know that in a struggle, you are not alone. If you think that you are alone in that struggle, you would never find a means of connecting with other people that are going through that struggle with you. The reason why I'm able to move forward is because I do not allow my struggle to paralyze me. I allow my struggles to energize me. I notice that my family do not accept me for being gay. My community, I thought was my community, did not accept me for being gay. Instead of me to be paralyzed by it, I was energized to look for people that I will connect with. So listening to the stories of people who have gone through your struggle, it gives you more hope that you can be able to go through it. Read literature of other people who look like you for you to know that you're not the only person that have this issue out there. I think that just continuing to remind yourself that you are not alone might be a point of advantage instead of just currently focusing on what you cannot change. What an inspiring story that shows that there is always the way out. Edafe Okporo, he's running a refugee shelter in New York and has dedicated his life to helping others. He's an author of two books, Bed 26 and Compassion is Worth More. For more information, visit our website, ibounceback.net, and you'll find there a blog post about Adafe where I linked all the information. It has become already a tradition that I finish a show by asking our guests to complete three incomplete sentences. This is how Edafe has completed them. Okay, so the first question is, the main thing I have learned through my journey? The main thing I have learned through my journey is that we should develop compassion for people who are struggling, and we do not have the struggles alone. My decision to flee Nigeria has been? The best decision I've ever taken. 
My next big goal in life is to build a compassionate and inclusive world. Isn't it exactly what we need right now? To be compassionate? Thank you for being with us. If you like the I Bounce Back podcast, please subscribe and visit our website ibounceback.net where you can find more information, blog posts and links to our social media accounts. Next time on June 17th, tune in to listen to a story about the courage to fight for your dreams. The first encounter of how people view people who are homeless was when um, the cab driver dropped me off and as I was coming out, the person shouted out, Oh, you people? I was really, not shocked, but I was thinking this could happen to anyone. I'll see you next week. Stay safe, keep going and believe in yourself. Ciao.